Psalm 145, found on page 631 of the Church Bibles. I will exalt you, my God the King. I will praise your name forever and ever. Every day I will praise you and extol your name forever and ever. Great is the Lord and most worthy of praise. His greatness no one can fathom. One generation will commend your works to another. They will tell of your mighty acts. They will speak of the glorious splendour of your majesty. And I will meditate on your, word, your wonderful works. They will tell of the power of your awesome works. And I will proclaim your great deeds. They will celebrate your abundant goodness and joyfully sing of your righteousness. The Lord is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and rich in love. The Lord is good to all. He has compassion on all he has made. All you have made will praise you, O Lord. Your saints will extol you. They will tell of the glory of your kingdom and speak of your might, so that all men may know your mighty acts. And the glorious splendour of your kingdom. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and your dominion endures through all generations. The Lord is faithful to all his promises and loving towards all he has made. The Lord upholds all those who fall and lifts up all who are bowed down. The eyes of all look to you, and you give them their food at the proper time. You open your hand and satisfy the desires of every living thing. The Lord is righteous in all his ways and loving towards all he has made. The Lord is near to all who call on him, to all who call on him in truth. He fulfills the desires of those who fear him. He hears their cry and saves them. The Lord watches over all who love him, but all the wicked he will destroy. My mouth will speak in praise of the Lord. Let every creature praise his holy name forever and ever. Thank you for reading for us. Do please keep that passage open. And as I said, there's an outline on the back of the notice sheet, which hopefully will help you to see where we're going. I will exalt you, my God, the King. I will praise your name forever and ever. Every day I will praise you and extol your name forever and ever. Praise. This psalm is full of it. I will praise, exalt, bless, declare, celebrate the Lord's. Verse 21, let every creature praise his holy name forever and ever. Uh, David begins the psalm uh, by declaring that he will praise God forever and ever. At the end of the psalm, calls on every living thing to praise the Lord forever and ever. Uh, the superscript, the, the bit between where it says Psalm 145 and verse 1, is part of the original psalm. And it literally is a praise of David. It's the only psalm which is titled a praise. Uh, the last sentence begins with the word praise. The theme of the psalm is praise, in case you've missed it. And this week, the psalm has hit me something like a steam train. When was the last time praise uh, fell out of me like a torrent? When was the last time I burst into song on the greatness of the Lord? Uh, indeed, when was the last time I wrote a song about the greatness of the Lord? Well, that one's never. <laughs> but David did. He is committed to praising God every day. And he encourages us to do the same. 
And so as we work through this psalm, David is going to show us two things. He's going to show us what it means to praise God, the mechanics of praise, if you like. And he's going to give us lots of reasons to praise God. But as he does so, he's going to be asking us a question, I think. Why don't you praise God like this? That's the expectation. We will praise God. And now perhaps you're here as somebody who is looking into Christian things. You've, you've wandered in for the first time, maybe, and you wouldn't call yourself a Christian. And, and you might be thinking, Ash, why would I praise the Christian God? Well, David's going to show us many things that God is doing for you and has done for you in his grace and mercy that deserve your praise. So read on. But many of us here will be long-standing Christians, and we already know we ought to praise God. And yet we know that often we forget to, or we don't want to. And David is going to help us to correct that as well. The psalm is a little like a double-decker sandwich, which is a personal favourite of mine. Uh, The bread is uh, the declarations of praise, verses 1 and 2 we've read, verse 10 in the middle of the psalm, and then again in verse 21 that we've read as well. And in between those declarations of praise are reasons to praise. And David cycles between the greatness of God and the goodness of God in various areas of life. And I've tried to represent that some, to some extent on the handout uh, in front of you. So let's jump into the psalm. Uh, Honour my God the King, verses 1 and 2. The opening line you see sets up uh, the frame within which the whole rest of the psalm unfolds. I will exalt you, my God the King. Notice two things he says about God here. The first is that he is the King. Not a king, not simply my king, but the king. Now David at this point is the greatest king in the world. He is the ruler of the great superpower. And every other king is beneath him. And yet he says, I will exalt the real king. The only true king. And throughout the psalm there are references to God's power and his kingdom. Which are set in the context of the king. He is the one who has all authority and rules over all creation. Now, being the king means that he rules over all, which means that he is your king, whether you acknowledge him or not. And yet David says, no, 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 he's my God, the king. David wants to say, no, I have a personal relationship with this king. He's not simply the king in abstract. He is my God, the king. See, David is one of the faithful. He's one who has a personal relationship with the king. And let's see what David says of the king. He says, I exalt the king. Now, to exalt means to put that person on a pedestal. It means to honour them. And we know what that looks like, don't we? Because we do it as a culture all the time. Whether it's uh, musicians or actors or sports people or authors or or people who've done something heroic in their sphere of uh, work. And we see somebody do something extraordinary, something that is above and beyond the call of duty, something that is uh, so far beyond our own personal capacity and, uh, and thought that we shower those people with accolades. Uh, we pay them handsomely, many of them. Uh, we offer them glory and honour for their achievements. Well, David says, above all others, God deserves honour. Indeed, You get the impression that as David says, I honour God, he reserves all honour for God. You can't imagine David saying, I'm going to honour God today, but I'm going to honour that person over there tomorrow. Because David spends every day praising God and for all eternity. 
And so it might be worth asking a question at this point that I guess will be in the background for much of our time this, uh, this morning. Who do we exalt instead of God? Who do we honour? We live in a country where every year the discussion is about how much testing happens to, to the children. They get younger and younger with the, with the exams, and we've had that discussion this year. And we've all grown up with this constant assessment, whether it's, it's music gradings or uh, achievements on the sports field or uh, academic examinations and testing. We have been assessed and measured and weighed, and we, we have it at work, don't we? And we're given a particular promotion or a particular recognition or remuneration in accordance with our worth. Who do we honour? I think for a lot of people here in Earlsfield, I think we probably honour ourselves. Because we're highly capable people. We've got good jobs. We've had a degree of success in the things that we do. We live in a nice part of town. We have our kids in good schools. We've earned it. We're worth it. Which of us, though, really is anything like as successful as David? Consider David, the shepherd boy, that, that, that terrible job that you never wanted to do, to be the shepherd, the stinky, smelly outcast, who, who won the great battle against the, the giant uh, Goliath, as we saw in our previous series, who rose up to become the general who established the greatest superpower of the world at that time, and then rose to become king, the most powerful man in the world. He's the one who centralised the government, laid plans for the temple, and wrote many of the great pop songs of his day. He was truly a polymath, with a truly breathtaking CV, and yet he exalts God alone. Now why does he do that? What does he see that we so often fail to see? Well, the, the first of the, the reasons he gives is this, the unfathomable greatness of the Lord, verses 3 to 6. Uh, last week, uh, while we were on holiday, uh, we went for a walk around a sort of peninsula at the, at the southern tip of Wales. It's a little island that sticks out, three-mile walk around the coast. And as you come over the, the hill and look out over the bay, it takes your breath away. Indeed, I did stop and try to take in the scale of the Atlantic Ocean, which lay in front of me. And it was uh, vast and far beyond uh, what I could see, thousands of miles beyond the horizon. I could see the bay a few miles across. I couldn't see the depth of it. I could only see the surface of it. But I had my breath taken away. I've looked at the maps, but I still struggle to get my head around the Atlantic. I know it takes uh, several hours to fly over it to get to my uh, parents. I struggle to comprehend its length and breadth and depth. And yet, on that, uh, as I crested that hill, I could see that the ocean was very great. Verse 3. Great is the Lord, and most worthy of praise... His greatness no one can fathom. Just as I stood on the edge of the cliff and looked out over the bay, so David, is, as it were, stands on the edge of God and tries to comprehend the greatness of God, his length and breadth and depth. And so much of God is, uh, and what he's done, is hidden from us. David isn't literally standing there uh, surveying him with his eyes. In that sense, God is unfathomable. 
No one can fathom his greatness. It is too great for us to comprehend. God is not in our creation. He's not like a beetle that you can put under a microscope and have a look at. He stands outside of the world, far above and beyond us, and yet he acts in the world. And so David is able to state for certain that God is great and most worthy of praise. Why? Verse 4. One generation will commend your works to another. They will tell of your mighty acts. They will speak of the glorious splendour of your majesty, and I will meditate on your wonderful works. So it's true, we cannot comprehend God, but that doesn't mean that we can't comprehend that he is great. And we can see how great he is by looking at his acts, his works, which is where David turns here. You can't see God, but you can see the mighty things that he has done. If you want to truly appreciate the splendour of God's glory, well, you need to meditate on who he is and what he's done. You could meditate on the creation that God has made by speaking into, into being. All the atoms that make up the whole universe, all the galaxies gathered together under his control, you could meditate on that. Or David would say, you could, you could think about his saving works, his great and mighty works for Israel. Perhaps the plagues in Egypt. The Passover, the parting of the Red Sea, the giving of the law at Sinai, delivering God's people into the land and then raising up a king after God's own heart. Great victories, great works of God. And we might add that we could, we could think about God's righteous anger against his own people for rebelling against him and casting them out of the land. We could think about him sending Jesus to proclaim forgiveness and to die for the sins of his people and to rise again for their justification. And we could think about the way God is going to send Jesus back to, to judge the living and the dead. Notice praise in these verses includes two things. It requires meditation, verse 5. I will meditate on your wonderful works. When we think of meditation, we often think about emptying our mind, sitting with your legs crossed. I can't do that. My legs are too, too tight to, to sit in that particular pose. We think of sitting there and emptying your mind of all thought. Somehow, that's meditation. Well, the biblical meditation is quite the opposite. I will meditate on your wonderful works. It's a matter of filling your mind, filling your heart, filling your whole vision with the wonderful works of God. And secondly, this reflection, this meditation is bound to lead to an overflow of speaking to others about those works. Verse 4, one generation will commend your works to another. So let me ask you, do you speak about the mighty acts and works of God to the next generation? Perhaps as a parent, you have the next generation in your home. Do you speak to them of wonder and glory of God in his saving works, his creation works? And perhaps you're an older Christian and there are younger adult Christians around you. Do you speak to each other of the great and praiseworthy works of God. Are we in the habit after the service of talking about the things that we've heard, of reflecting on them and meditating on them together over coffee or over lunch in the park? See, I wonder, if we're not in that habit, any of those habits, I wonder if it's because we've forgotten to meditate in the first place. David meditates on the works of God and out of that meditation comes praise, a life of praise, which overflows to speaking to others. 
I wonder if we've lost that awe of God. We've stopped seeing the wonder of his greatness in all the things he's done. We've become so familiar with his saving works that we've stopped reflecting on them and enjoying them and delighting in them and sharing them. And so as we enter a new church year in September, what will our pattern of life look like? What will your pattern of life look like? What will your priorities be for your reading, for your speaking? Will you make a priority of our small group so you can look at and meditate on the wonder of God's greatness in the book of Revelation? Be here on Sundays as we go through various books of the Bible, unpacking them and trying to see the greatness of God in them. What will your personal devotional life look like? What will you be reading to encourage you to dwell and meditate and reflect on the greatness of God? God is great, but because great power is a scary thing, isn't it? You only have to think about how Christians, for example, suffer in North Korea under Kim Jong-un to see that absolute power can be a terrifying thing. And so uh, David turns from uh, this awesome greatness uh, to the abundant goodness of the Lord, verses 7 to 9. And again, our psalm is is piling up language that is loaded with biblical background, and we won't have time to go into all of that now. Uh, Notice verse 7, for example, We'll celebrate your abundant goodness and joyfully sing of your righteousness. And see, when we use the word good, we mean it as not quite great, not quite excellent. It's, it's all right, it's good, but it's not great. But the Bible doesn't use the word good like that. It uses it in an absolute sense. It means God is absolutely perfect in everything, which is why it gets paired with his righteousness. What God does is always right. It's absolutely right and good in everything that he does, in every situation. And that's unpacked for us in verse 8 a little bit, isn't it? The Lord is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and rich in love. Precisely the words God used to describe himself in Exodus 34 to Moses. If you were in the overview last year, you'll remember that. So slow to anger is he that even those who hate him are given their next breath. Given time to repent, time to turn back to him. He is good to all. He has compassion on everything that he has made. And the Bible tells us many, many ways that God has been compassionate to all. It means he holds back from judging the world, for example. Peter tells us God is holding back his judgment to give time for people to repent, to turn to him and receive his salvation. He causes the sun and the rains to to fall on the righteous and the unrighteous, giving us food and so on. He gives us our next breath. And our next. And our next. How many blessings just in the time we've been meeting together this morning. Because he's gracious, because he's compassionate, he upholds your very life. It means that in a thousand different ways, every single day, God is blessing and preserving us. Whether you're a Christian or not. God has done great things for you. And yet we so often fail to recognise it. We take God's mercies to all mankind so much for granted that we don't stop and look at them, don't stop and recognise them. And because we don't see them, we don't thank God for them, we don't overflow and praise for them, do we? So again, would you stop and reflect? I think from time to time, a really good practice is to get out a piece of paper and just begin to write down your blessings. Things to be thankful for, things that you are thankful for, things that you should be thankful for. 
And you'll find yourself overflowing in praise as you recognise every day the great blessings that God has given to you. You could think about the blessings of living in this country with great safety and security, your job, your domestic situation, uh, the church family here. You could thank God for your parents, your health, your education, the opportunities that those things have given to you. You could thank him for the food on your plate, the roof over your head and the friends and family to share it with. And that's all before you get anywhere near the blessings of salvation. I think we've become a very self-reliant culture. And in Earlsfield particularly, as successful people, we're very capable. And so we look to ourselves for, uh, for, for help. We look to ourselves for uh, success. And when we get there, we think we've earned it. And we stop looking to the God who's given everything to us. We forget that he gives us our life, our minds, our health, our capacities and every opportunity that we have. And so we forget to praise him. Well, don't. Verse 10 then introduces us to the next section in which there are two sorts of praise, did you notice? All you have made will praise you, O Lord. I was reading, I've been reading through the Psalms in my devotion, Psalm 19. The heavens declare the glory of God and the skies proclaim his handiwork. Now, the psalmist there is not saying that, that, God, that God has given a mouth to the heavens, that it literally speaks. It's saying that there is a sort of speech that comes just by the very existence of the heavens. When you look up at the vast blue skies, or cloudy skies as we've got today, when you see the stars and the moon and the sun, you see how great they are, how beautiful they are. They declare that God is greater and more beautiful than even those things. And everything in creation praises God like that. So even the most hate-filled persecutor of the church in Syria or the most bile-filled new atheists writing publications about how demonic God is, even they cannot get away from proclaiming the glory of God. As as they take their next breath upheld by God's kindness, they are declaring that God is good, even as they hate him. Every time any of us breathes in and out, we declare God's goodness and his compassion to all creation. But there's more, isn't there? The second half of the verse, your saints will extol you. See, there is a sort of praise that comes from every living thing, but there's a particular praise that comes from the mouth of people. It's a praise that will not come from the the hate-filled IS gorilla or, or from the new atheist, but will come from God's people, the church. It's the, it's the mouth that recognises who God is. For the Christian recognises God as the king of all things and sees the goodness of his kingdom. They will tell of the glory of your kingdom and speak of your might, so that all men may know of your mighty acts and the glorious splendour of your kingdom. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and your dominion endures through all generations. David here returns to the language of verses 3 to 6 and the greatness of God to describe God's kingdom. And that's not a great surprise, is it? Because he's described God as king, as mighty, as splendid, as glorious. And it makes total sense that such a king would have such a kingdom that has the same character. The kingdom of God is a place where God rules. It's a kingdom that had a physical presence in, in Israel in David's day. It's a kingdom that will have a physical presence as Jesus rules over the new heavens and the new earth at the end of time. And it is a... Uh, There is a physical presence of God's kingdom now in the church. 
Oh sure, when Jesus comes to rule forever, it will be an eternal kingdom that we will enjoy forever. But even now, God is doing wonderful things in the church. Now, I know and you know that the church looks anything but glorious most of the time. Uh, We've all tried to scrub up a little bit for Sunday, but still, we don't look that glorious. And yet it is the place where God is performing miracles week after week. Drawing people from death and hostility to God to saving life. Drawing those who have life to be more like Jesus day by day. The church is the place where God in his power is building a beautiful kingdom. Back in verse 4, we heard that we're to speak to the next generation of God's mighty acts. And there's a question, I guess, was that uh, just to our families, just within the church, or where? Well, verse 12 gives us a bit of a, a steer there, doesn't it? Verse 11, they will tell of your glory, to, uh, the glory of your kingdom, speak of your might, so that all men may know of your mighty acts and the glorious splendour of your kingdom. Uh, God has given to us to uh, declare his greatness to everybody. So how is your evangelism? How is your telling other people about the greatness of God, his compassion, his kingdom, uh, the wonder of his glory? See, if we're slow to evangelism, and I guess many of us will feel that we are, perhaps it's because we don't dwell enough on the greatness of God's glory. If we meditate on God's greatness, if we see his glory will rise up in in thankfulness and praise, and it will overflow in telling others. If we lack that that uh, declarative side, then perhaps we've lost the meditative side. Uh, But David goes on. There are more things to praise God for. Verses 13 to 16, God's daily mercies. See, so much of the psalm has been about the grand vistas of God uh, ruling history uh, and, and doing great saving works. But from the second half of verse 13 onwards, David returns to the theme of God's goodness to all creation in a very personal way. God is not simply out there beyond the universe, ruling things from a distance. He is very intimately involved with every living thing. Verse 14, the Lord upholds all who fall and lifts up all who are bowed down. The eyes of all look to you and you give them their food at the proper time. You open your hand and satisfy the desires of every living thing. I don't think these uh, these verses are saying that God uh, indefinitely sustains all things. We know that people and, uh, and animals and plants die. But it is saying that the only one who can sustain us is the Lord. He's the one who opens his hands, causes the rains to fall, causes the sun to shine, causes the crops to grow, to feed every living thing in its proper time. He's the one who satisfies the desires of all living things for food and shelter. Who is it who sustains the weary? Who is it who lifts up their head when they are too bowed down? Who is it who opens his hands for rains and seasons? Who is it that the the animal kingdom know to look to for their food and we so often ignore? It is the Lord. We're so wealthy in this country that we're barely affected, aren't we? If there's a a famine throughout the whole of Africa and food prices rise, we just pay more money and we don't even notice. We're so wealthy here that we we could just ask Mr. Ricardo to deliver anything we wanted to, and he would. And we'd have to think about where it's come from, that it's come from God's hand, that he's given every good thing in its season. See, our wealth... And our ability to provide for ourselves and our our belief that we are so competent and capable to look after ourselves means that we hide 
from the reality that every good thing, every good thing, comes from God. Now David's been piling up reason upon reason upon reason for us to praise God. He's given evidence of God's infinite might worked out in the history of the world. He's shown his compassion, his mercy, and his intimate care for every living thing. And yet we don't look, and we don't notice it. We're so wrapped up in our own little world, trying to sustain our own lives, that we ignore his daily and eternal provisions. And so the final uh, sort of stanza, verses 17 to 20, uh, offer uh, an encouragement and a warning for us. I think it addresses three types of people uh, that, that he calls to call on the Lord. And the first is this. The first person David envisages here is the wicked person. Verse 20, all the wicked he will destroy. Notice that it's in direct contrast to God, the Lord who is righteous in all his ways, verse 17. He's given every good thing to every person, whether you recognise it or not. But the wicked person ignores God, abuses his goodness, and wants nothing to do with the Lord. And his his end result is he will be destroyed. That might sound like an unloving thing. God, God is uh, righteous in all his ways and loving towards all that he's made, but he will destroy the wicked. That sounds contrary. But we need to understand what love is. Biblically, love is a righteous love. He gives to people what they deserve. If we turn our backs on God, if we try to live for ourselves and not for him, if we don't recognise that every good thing we have, every breath we take is from his loving hand... If we turn our back on him, he will turn his back on us. In the end, that is the, the definition biblically of destruction is to be separated from God forever and ever. And we will get what we have asked for. And let me say, please don't make that mistake. Please don't turn your back on him so that he turns his back on you. That would be a very great tragedy. The second person David envisages is the person who's the opposite of that. The one who's heeded the rest of the psalm. The one who meditates on his works, who remembers his kingdom and his greatness and how good it is. Such a person will call on the Lord. Verse 18. The Lord is near to all who call on him. To all who call on him in truth. Do you see, the person who calls on him finds that God is with them. The Lord is near to the one who calls. God is close to bear up his people and to answer prayer. Such a person, verse 19, has a a right fear of God. He fulfills the desires of those who fear him. He hears their cry and saves them. To fear God is to recognise that he is the most fearsome of all. There is nothing greater than God and nothing more worthy of our right awe and terror. But because he is the mighty one, we cry out to him, verse 19, and he hears and saves we cry out to God for salvation because he alone can give it and he delivers for all of us he will not turn people away if they turn and cry to him such a person then who has found God to be one who walks with us and answers prayer one who uh, delivers when we cry out to him will naturally verse 20 overflow in love for him and that person can know that God is watching their steps every day clearing the road keeping us safe, even as we walk through the valley of the shadow of death. Isn't that the person we aspire to be in our better moments? One who cries out to God regularly, who prays and finds that God answers prayer, one who clings to him and knows that he is close and loves us and cares for us. 
Which is why I think David speaks to a third sort of person. Perhaps the sort of person that many of us often are. This is a person who knows that God is great, but forgets. The one who doesn't make it their daily habit to remember God and praise him for his greatness. Such a person, relying on their own strength for all of life, doesn't cry out to him in truth, verse 18. And because we don't cry out to him, we don't find that he is a near support, caring for us and answering prayer. And so we miss out on another opportunity to praise him. Such a person forgets to fear God, but fears other things. Doesn't cry out for the things that God desires to give them, but cries out for their own desires. And then gets frustrated when God doesn't give what we want, but only gives what he wants to give. See, the the Christian person cries out to God according to the fear of him, according to the things that God has promised to give. But the person who knows God is great but doesn't care for the way God rules the world will desire things that are not according to God's purpose. And so we miss out on the endless blessings of receiving daily the things that God chooses to give us. Again, we miss out on the chance to praise him. Such a person knows that God is great, knows that it's good to be in his kingdom, but we will not love him as we should because we're still distracted by the world. We don't care that God watches our steps. We want to mark our own path and walk our own way. We want the blessings of being in his eternal kingdom, but we don't particularly get fussed by delighting in him and loving him now. I suspect that many of us, if the truth be told, find ourselves in that last camp. And the trouble is, David only has really two camps, doesn't he? He has the the wicked who are going to be destroyed and the one who delights in God. He doesn't really see that there's a middle ground. You can't stand in the middle uh, wanting a bit of both. And so let me encourage all of us, myself included, to be very careful, dear friends, that we order our lives this year to make it a habit to really dwell on who God is and fill our hearts with love for him as we reflect on every bit of his goodness to us. Let it fill our minds, our hearts, our affections, our imaginations. Let it overflow in thanksgiving and praise to him so that it spills out of us in our conversations with each other, conversations with our kids, conversations with other people's kids, conversations with our neighbours, everywhere we are would the glory of God flow out of us to his greater glory? Let me pray. Our very great and awesome God, we do want to praise you as you deserve. And we recognise that we have often failed to do that and we praise you for your offer of forgiveness which we claim again in Jesus' name. And we pray that you would reform us according to your word that you would set before us a very great many of your uh, blessings and uh, the privileges of being your people. Help us to cling to them. Help us to encourage each other in them. Help us to remember how very great you are, that we might uh, overflow in praise and thanksgiving and proclamation to others. And we pray it for your glory. Amen.